All right, everybody, welcome back to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. Jason, how you doing? I'm doing great, D. How you doing tonight? Oh, I'm doing fantastic. I've got my Seagram's Golden Wine Cooler over here, and I'm practicing <laughs> some martial arts. I guess we're going to have to register you as a lethal weapon. You BKA, motherfucker. <laughs> Jason, I cannot believe it. We have reached the final comparison of season one. We have done our first season, and I'm so excited and so happy. It's been amazing, man. I, it's I had been a fantastic year. It's been great. It has been so fun to do this with you, and I can't wait to tackle season two coming up, ending the year with two of our favorite movies of all times, right at Christmas time, where they need to be. I can't wait to get into these two movies, man. These are two of my all-time favorite movies what a great way to end the season i know man i literally have lost sleep thinking about these episodes <laughs> like i lay in my bed going i can't wait to talk about these two movies i've lost sleep because i feel like i'm not going to do justice to these movies because they're so good i know right Hey, before we get too far in the podcast, I, I want to give a quick shout out. We, we got a really nice review and I just want to send it out there. If you're enjoying the show, please rate us. Give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. That helps people find us. That helps us kind of get where we want to be. Thank you to RoyalsFan83. This is what he said. The title says, my new favorite podcast. This is such a fun show that reminds me of the friendly debates my friends and I used to have in high school. The hosts are very upbeat, informed, and their enthusiasm for music movies is infectious. It's also one of the few podcasts that I can listen to with the kids in the car and not worry about their profanity. Keep up the great work, and I can't wait for the next episode. Royals Fan 83, thank you. And we've got to give a special shout out to the Beckett Foundation. They, yeah. on Twitter referenced something I said back in April, back April 21st, when we were doing Coming to America versus Trading Places. I said something about Ralph Bellamy versus Bill Bellamy and that they were not related and post a picture. And my gosh, these guys, what is it now? Uh, eight months later, they're the ones who posted the picture of Bill Bellamy. Thank you guys for getting the joke. Thank you for being in on it. Uh, we really appreciate you. Check out them at the Beckett Foundation on Twitter. That was really cool. I had to refresh my memory. I was like, I don't remember what we were talking about. <laughs> Why did they send us a picture of Bill Bellamy? That's so strange. <laughs> well, like you said, this is the end of season one. We will be taking a break after the completion of the Die Hard versus Lethal Weapon comparison. And we will be back in February. Hopefully that'll give us a chance to get ahead, do some studying and uh, see our families. <laughs> yes, yes. The good news is that right as we're coming to our pause, the soundtrack show is starting to drop some new episodes. Check them out because the soundtrack show is the bomb. Also, check out our friends at the 30-something movie podcast. They're getting ready to start 1991. Yeah. You've got to go check out 30-something guys, John and Pat and Bo and occasionally Jeff and some of the other guys. Always brilliant. Always funny. All right. Well... How you feeling? I, I feel fantastic. I'm excited to be here. I'm drinking out of my custom engraved Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast stainless steel cup, which you, listener, 
out there, yes, you, the one that's listening right now, you can get this. All you have to do is go to our Patreon page and you, if you subscribe at the, is it the Duke's brother level? We have, we have the Billy Ray Valentine level. We yes. have the Lewis Winthorpe. Winthorpe level. We have the Duke's brothers level and we have the Prince Akeem level. If you subscribe at the Duke's Brothers level, you will get a set of awesome headphones and a custom engraved Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast cup, and you become executive producer of one of our episodes. James Buckley, appreciate you, buddy. It's fantastic. Yeah. Sign me up. I'm ready to do this. Yes. Well, you already pay for our episodes, so you can <laughs> for free. <laughs> but yes, if you have loved what you've heard so far this year, please sign up, become one of our Patreon subscribers. It's so much fun to engage with those guys and we, we can always use the support. All right. So enough of the pledge drive campaigning that we're doing here. Uh, time to jump into these movies. Jason, are you ready? Do you really want to jump? <laughs> well, do you? Well, that's just fine with me. <laughs> oh, let's do it, man. Let's do it. Okay. I got to say this. In this entire year, it's been amazing to learn about the different people involved in all of our favorite music and movies. The guy that I didn't know that I am excited to have learned about is Shane Black. He was a guy who was just a name up until we started doing our research for this. But what an what an interesting guy he is. You know, he's like your friend that is this just this <laughs> always angry, hating on life guy, but is so intelligent and so funny that you still love him. And that's to me, that's Shane Black. You know. It's interesting that you say that. I didn't know a whole lot about him before this. I, of course, familiar with some of his movies. And we talked about him very, very briefly back in our Bill and Ted episode. Chris Matheson and Ed Solomon were in class with Shane Black at UCLA. And they would talk about how they would work and work, struggle to come up with these ideas. And this guy barely came to class, didn't say two words in class. But when he turned in a writing assignment, it was the best thing that anybody in the class had ever seen. So he actually shared a house with Ed Solomon. They weren't just in class together. They shared a house. Him, Ed Solomon, and Fred Decker, who's the guy who wrote Monster Squad and Night of the Creeps and Robocop 3, they all shared a house together, which they called the Pad O'Guys, and they considered it a like fraternity for the movie buffs of UCLA and they would go out and recreate John Woo fight scenes in their front yard at three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> that sounds exactly like what my house was like when I was in college. I was a theater major. So I had a house full of actors and this is the kind of crap that we would do. We just did not become internationally famous afterwards. <laughs> Tragic. Okay. So Shane Black starts off in childhood as a reader. He is a book lover and he likes the Hardy boys, but he also likes the Mickey Spillane grown 
grown-up books. And so he becomes this big mystery thriller reader. And when he gets into UCLA, he, he becomes interested in writing and starts developing the screenplay. And he's got an older brother named Terry Black, who at the time was not a screenwriter, but at the time was somebody that Shane Black adored. And Shane Black was working on this screenplay that he was really excited about. And he actually took a, a break from college to finish up this scene and the screenplay that he was working on. And he showed it to his brother to see what he thought of it. And his brother said, I don't like it. Um, Ouch. It it was this kind of weird mix of like a a platoon of army guys in Vietnam and some sort of supernatural stuff going on. And so Shane is devastated and he's sitting there in front of his typewriter contemplating whether he should bother to go on writing anything ever again. And the page is just staring at him and he's staring back at the page and he decides to write a sentence. And that sentence gets followed by another sentence. And then the words just kind of start flowing out of him. And he writes an entirely different scene, which becomes an entirely different script, which ultimately he shows to somebody who gets him an agent who then finds a way to get the script that he's written sold. And that script that he wrote at 21, which he sells at 22, is the script for Lethal Weapon. It's fantastic. That moment in front of the typewriter was a moment of precarious history because he said, had I not typed that sentence, had I not typed that sentence, I would have given up writing forever. But something just was staring back at me that said, just type something. It is because of that, that we have Lethal Weapon and that we have Iron Man 3 and that we have the nice guys. I mean, pretty huge deal. And the name of that script that he showed his brother that he changed, The Shadow Company. Yay. All right. Right. So those are the bad guys from Lethal Weapon. Exactly. If you haven't, if you haven't seen Lethal Weapon in a while, that is the company that all of the bad guys got together in in Lethal Weapon. Nice. Yeah. You know, one of the things when we were talking about prepping for this, so I know Shane Black as the writer of Lethal Weapon. He wrote Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. He wrote Long Kiss Goodnight. He wrote Iron Man Three. But he's also he he acts in Predator. He's the guy with glasses. He's like the one guy that's not totally muscle bound. That's Shane Black. Yes, he's the first guy to die. He sold Lethal Weapon, and so he's got two hundred and fifty thousand, which is pretty nice for a guy who's twenty two years old, right? Heck yeah. And so Joel Silver, the producer of Lethal Weapon and the producer of Die Hard, both the movies we're talking about, he says, "Hey, Joel, can I be in this movie Predator?" And Joel's like, "Sure. We just we want you to come in, and we want you to help out with the script writing on this deal." And he's like, "Okay." So Shane Black goes, and he is the He's the first soldier to die in Predator. He's Hawkins. That's his name. But you know who the director of Predator was? John McTiernan. Who then goes on to direct? Die Hard. Isn't it amazing? So these movies, I mean, we just, we jumped on these movies because they're the obvious comparison, right? They're both Christmas movies. Yes. (laughs) Absolutely they are. And they are both urban cowboy movies right they are the they're the the urban gunslinger movies right yep for sure 100 but they're related in so many other ways you have the you, you've got the overlap of at least three actors in both of the movies 
you've got the scriptwriter of Lethal Weapon is in a movie directed by the director of Die Hard. And later on, he becomes a writer for Last Action Hero, which is also directed by the director of Die Hard. It's all just, they're just intertwined so, so tightly. I've never seen two movies that were more closely related than these two. When you look at the casting, and I know we'll, we'll get into casting here in a minute, but Arnold Schwarzenegger starred in Predator, directed by John McTiernan. Yeah. John McTiernan's next project is Die Hard. He was going to hire Arnold Schwarzenegger. This was going to be a commando sequel. Yeah. Right? And instead of his wife being in trouble, it was Alyssa Milano, his daughter. I mean, these movies are from the same DNA. Yeah, you were talking to me earlier and said these two movies could almost be in the same universe. And they really could. I mean, they're both in L.A. You could really see, you know, Sergeant Al Powell walking in as Murtaugh and Riggs are walking out, right? Oh, that would have been awesome. I would have loved that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, he, I, I think for whatever Die Hard Lethal Weapon sequel that's coming up, if they did some sort of overlap like that, I might just lose my freaking mind. <laughs> Al Pal tosses Riggs a Twinkie on the way by, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> We'd have to figure out how Agent Johnson, who died, now I guess he died in both of them. He'd have to. <laughs> I know. <laughs> They were twin brothers or something. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's talk about that for just a second. So Agent Johnson, no, the other one, (laughs) he was in Die Hard, right? right? Grandel Bush. Yes. And he was also uh, a cop in Lethal Weapon. Yes. Then you have Al Leon, who was the, the guy who tortured Riggs with the battery cable. Yes. He was also Genghis Khan in... Bill and Ted, Bill and Ted. I'm just going to throw that in there. Written by Ed Solomon, who was the roommate of Shane Black, as we've established. <laughs> and he was also the terrorist who, if you'll remember, reached under and got a baby Ruth right before they shot the two-by-two formation coming in the building. Yeah. Also, and, yeah. you have Robert Zemeckis' ex-wife, Mary Ellen Trainer. She plays the police psychologist who says, Riggs is he's on the edge. You don't want to be around him when he goes. And she's also the TV reporter in Die Hard. Yep. She's yeah. the one standing next to the news reporter who says, eat it, Harvey. Right. And she's also the mom in Goonies, which is directed by Richard Donner, who's also yep. the director of Lethal Weapon. It's amazing. And the police chief in Lethal Weapon is also the police officer in Superman 1, which is also directed by Richard Donner. His name is Steve Cahan. He is the cousin a film writer, producer, and director, Richard Donner. There you go. I watched some of the interviews with Richard Donner on Lethal Weapon back when it was first out. He was rocking the mullet just like Mel Gibson was. It was the like mullet 2.0 where it's all feathered. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> like oh, the yeah. Swooping. Ooh. Okay, so we've, we've hit Joel Silver, who produced both movies. We've hit Shane Black, who wrote Lethal Weapon. Then we've hit John McTiernan, who is the director of Die Hard. Now, he had come off of Predator, as you said. He got that job because he had written and directed a movie called Nomads, which had Pierce Brosnan in it. This was Pierce Brosnan's first role and you probably didn't see that movie it wasn't really well regarded but if you happen to watch it there's a scene where a guy falls 
you're it's got your point of view and you're watching him fall off of a building nice and, and i was and i'm like what this is the same oh well it's the same director and i listened to him he's like yes i stole it from myself <laughs> you think i didn't you think i didn't know what i was doing there of course I knew what I was doing. <laughs> you've got richard donner directing lethal weapon and then the guy that we haven't mentioned yet but we have mentioned previously in some of our other episodes mr steven d'souza who wrote and really kind of rewrote Die Hard. Yes, yes. You know, just to backtrack, just a touch, Richard Donner, we have now covered Superman 1, Superman 2-ish with Richard Donner, The Lost Boys, Lethal Weapon, and I promise you at some point we're going to cover The Goonies. No question. It will be one of the movies for season two for sure. Richard Donner has his fingerprints all over the 80s. Steven D'Souza was not the original writer of Die Hard. The original writer was a guy named Jeb Stewart. Now, Jeb Stewart had signed a contract with Disney. It was a four-movie contract, and so he's obligated to write four movies for them. And basically, they paid him so little that he was about to go broke. And so after he completed his first script for them, he had like this six-week time period that he could write a movie for somebody else. And so what he did was to go and find a novel that he liked, and he decided to write that script. He wrote Nothing Lasts Forever by Roderick Thorpe. Yes, which in that novel, John McClane is not named John McClane. He has a different first name. The character in the book is called Joseph Leland. I don't know if we want to dive into... Yes, go for it. Yeah, Joe yeah. Leland. Okay, so you're absolutely right. So Die Hard is the movie version of a book called Nothing Lasts Forever by Roderick Thorpe. This is the sequel book to another book called The Detective. Now, The Detective was made into a movie in the late 60s starring Frank Sinatra. Frank Sinatra played Joe Leland, and when they remade Nothing Lasts Forever as Die Hard, contractually, they had to offer the part to Frank Sinatra. Can you imagine a world where Die Hard, instead of Bruce Willis, we had a 73-year-old Frank Sinatra? Not not a chance. And neither could Frank Sinatra. Are you kidding <laughs> me, baby? Give me another drink. Come on. <laughs> I say yippee-ki-yay. Shooby-dooby-doo. <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully, he had the good sense to say, no, thanks. I No, I'm not doing that. Right. So... Jeb Stewart takes this opportunity to write the movie Die Hard. And really, Joel Silver is just kind of rolling at this point. Joel Silver has is a producer that has suddenly come out with Predator and Lethal Weapon. He's literally out promoting them at the same time. The studio calls him because they say, hey, we've got this book and we've got this script that's okay can you can you do something with it and he's like sure let's put it together so jeb stewart's script ultimately gets substantially rewritten by steven d'souza so like you said they had this plan that it would be commando 2 which was all well and good until arnold schwarzenegger said no thank you right he wanted to take a shot at comedy and so he went and did the movie twins right have you seen twins yeah i like it okay i have eh. Whatever. It doesn't blow my freaking doors off like Die Hard does, though. No, of course not, because it's comedy. It's not an action. But he wanted to, he wanted to show his range, and that's fine. So you don't get Arnold Schwarzenegger. Obviously, the second choice has to be Sylvester Stallone. Yep. And he says, no, no, thank you as well. And you're like, well, crap. Uh, who else do we have? Yeah, I mean, do we want to go? I've got the list of actors. Yes, go, 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 go. Okay, so 
we've already talked in its original incarnation, you had Frank Sinatra offered the part. At that time, it was a father-daughter relationship rather than a husband and wife. Right. So they offered to Charles Bronson, Burt Reynolds, Richard Gere was Joel Silver's first choice. Yeah. He Still pushed Lester's- hard, pushed hard on Richard Gere. And Richard really Gere was like, Richard Gere. no, I don't really like it. I don't want to be running around with a gun and doing my own stunts. No, thanks. Okay. So let's keep going. Yeah. Richard Gere, Sylvester Stallone, as you said, Harrison Ford, yeah. Arnold Schwarzenegger, as we talked about, Clint Eastwood had a shot at this. Too old at that point. Robert De Niro was very close to Die Hard. That had been a different movie altogether. That would have been. Don Johnson. Yeah. Yeah. So Don Johnson at this point is very hot with Miami Vice. And then Bruce Willis is very hot with Moonlighting. Hang on, I'm not done. Oh, sorry. So sorry. Um, No, no, no. So speaking of hot on TV, you have Don Johnson. You have Richard Dean Anderson. Ring a bell? MacGyver. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Not going to. Al Pacino. (sighs) Okay. And finally, Mel Gibson was offered this part. What? Yeah. What? Mel Gibson. Ah. That's amazing. That is amazing. All those guys turned it down. All those guys not interested. And so Bruce Willis, Bruce Willis, again, was a a choice of Joel Silver. Like he had seen him in Blind Date, which was the Blake Edwards movie that had come out before. And obviously he had seen him in, in Moonlighting. And so he didn't have big a big box office pull at this point, but Joel Silver thought that he could make it happen. He thought that he could do it. Okay. We got to talk about this for a second. Were you a fan of blind date? Never seen it. Okay. I am an unapologetic fan of the movie blind date. I like Blake Edwards movies. They're friggin' funny. Blake Uh, Edwards is the guy who did pink Panther movies. If that helps anybody out there. Yes. And the movie skin deep with, with John Ritter. (laughs) I think they're so funny. And I think Bruce Willis is very charming, very funny in the movie Blind Date, and it kind of gets beat on a little bit. But I am a huge fan of Moonlighting. How about you? Absolutely. Watched every single episode. Loved it. Yeah. Great, great TV show. So weirdly, this is kind of a weird thing that happens. I mean, they've gone through a whole bunch of people and are basically kind of left with Bruce Willis. And Joel Silver is having to push to get him in the movie, but then they offer him $5 million to play this part, which is insane. That's a crazy amount of money to offer even a star at this point. And he's a guy who has has done one movie that's been released. It's actually two movies, but one that's been released at this point, and it only did kind of good. And so... Robert Murdoch, the the head of the studio, greenlights it. He's like, yep, go ahead. Give him $5 million. (laughs) And so the next day, Richard Dreyfuss fired his agent. I (laughs) heard this. What? He's never done anything, and I've done all that. You can't give me $5 million. You're fired. (laughs) So the question is then at this point, hey, we've hired him. We've got him for $5 million, but – He's still in Moonlighting. I mean, that's a TV show that's constantly filming, but they've got this little miracle that happens. Sybil Shepard gets pregnant, and they have to stop filming Moonlighting for six weeks. 
And so they have exactly six weeks to film Die Hard with Bruce Willis. They don't film the whole movie in that six weeks. They just film the Bruce Willis parts in the first six weeks. And then they go on and film the other parts after that, which is kind of, I mean, you know, we watch movies and we kind of, we, you know, we, we have this image that it's all filmed chronologically, which of course it's not, but it's just kind of interesting to think that so much of the conversation that occurs on the radio between Al and John and Hans and John didn't really ever really happen. It was just the magic of movies. Movie magic. And so interestingly, the, the villain in Die Hard, this is his first major motion picture. Yep. Mr. Alan Rickman had never been in a motion picture before. He had done some British television. He had done quite a bit of stage work. And that ultimately is how he got discovered. He was in Liaisons Dangerous as the bad guy in that on a Broadway production. And John McTiernan and Joel Silver happened to catch the play and they see him being the bad guy and they're like, there's our Hans Gruber. There is our villain right there. And they offer him the part. So as we just discussed, the first scenes that they're shooting are the scenes with Bruce Willis in it. So that means the first scene that they film with Alan Rickman is the scene where he meets John McClane as Hans Gruber pretending to be Bill Clay. Clay. Bill Clay. Which is weird because Bill Clay is, of course, nothing like Hans Gruber. Yeah, so there's an interesting story with this. So they're, they're sitting around at lunch one day. Of course, Alan Rickman has a heavy English accent, but they're asking him, hey, Alan, do you do an American accent? And he said, well, I don't, I don't really do an American accent, but I do do like a California accent. <laughs> and he cracked everybody up and everybody was dying laughing. And they're like, man, we got to do this. The characters have to meet. And to me, this blows my mind. Okay, so we have this really amazingly well-constructed action movie. Maybe the best action movie ever. And they were building it on the fly. So Steven D'Souza is sitting right there. And they're like, hey, we got to figure out a way to get these two guys together. They have to meet. And we have to use this accent. So, you know, John McClane doesn't know. And so Steven D'Souza gets busy writing this scene. And then they think back when they're like, no, uh, shoot. He sees him shoot Takagi. And Steven D'Souza's like, well, wait a minute. Have we shot that scene yet? And they're like, nope, it's, it's set for tomorrow. And so they have to play with the angles to make sure that John McClane never sees Hans's face. Oh, so that's why he's under the table. That's it. He's under the table. And if you watch the scene, you don't see Hans from John's perspective. So they shoot that first scene between Bruce and Alan, John and Bill, and John and Hans, too many things going on there. And so they start showing dailies to people, and they've got people from the studio there. And when they're watching the scene with Alan Rickman playing Bill Clay, there's a casting director there named Nancy Clopwright who loses her mind. She gets like super upset and it's like, we can't have this guy as the bad guy. He's too weak. And Joel Silver's like, that's what it's supposed to be in the scene. He's, he is playing weak. He's not actually weak. He's playing weak. And she goes on this huge campaign to get Alan Rickman fired, which I know, I mean, can you imagine that? I mean, if there is, I, I love, love, love Bruce Willis. But if I got to pick one actor that made this movie, 
it was Alan Rickman. So that is kind of the beginnings of Die Hard, which I don't know why we talked about it first, because it was the second movie. What had come out a couple of years before was a movie called Lethal Weapon. Yes, friggin' Lethal Weapon. (laughs) And this is the one that Shane Black wrote that we were talking about. So Shane Black has this script. Richard Donner hates action movies. But he reads this script and he enjoys the humor and he enjoys the fault in each of the main characters. Like you've you've got the guy who's suicidal and a little bit crazy and you've got the guy who's too old for this shit. And so to him makes it a much more compelling story. And then, if, like I said, it's got the humor in it. And so Richard Donner's like, yes, this looks like a great movie. Now they had wanted other people for this. You ready for casting on Lethal Weapon? Heck yeah, let's do it. Okay, you jump on it, man. So initially when they were hiring for Lethal Weapon, they had no ethnicity specifically in mind. So the black family cop and the white suicidal cop, that wasn't necessarily in the script. They just kind of came together through casting. Initially, they wanted Brian Dennehy to play Roger Murtaugh. I could see that. He had just done First Blood and thought, no, I've already done the cop thing. For Riggs, they looked at Alec Baldwin Jeff Bridges, Pierce Brosnan, Robert De Niro, Don Johnson, Michael Keaton. I could see him being the suicidal cop. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You want to get nuts? (laughs) (laughs) Liam Neeson, Sean Penn, Dennis Quaid, Kurt Russell. I mean, Tom Selleck, Charlie Sheen. These are all 80s action stars. But here's the one that I find the most interesting. Yes. Christopher Reeve was considered for the role of Martin Riggs. Right, right. He worked with Donner previously on Superman. Yeah. Seems like maybe a fit, but I don't. Uh -uh. (laughs) Uh-uh. Going to go ahead and disagree on that. Bob, well, uh, not, not a, fit. a fit for the character. No, a familiar face with yeah. Donner. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, no, but um, yes, very interesting choice. But I would say probably the most interesting consideration is Bruce Willis. See, that's crazy, right? I'll tell you a little secret. What? I'm not crazy. These movies are so connected. It's unbelievable. Right. So Mel Gibson was considered for John McClane and Bruce Willis was considered for Martin Riggs. Do you know who Shane Black wanted to play Martin Riggs? William Hurt. I can see that. And as we know, William Hurt's a guy who's not afraid to say no. Right. He turned down, flashback to our Jurassic Park episode. Did he I turn believe down he turned down Malcolm? the role of Dr. Grant. Oh, was it Dr. Dr. Grant? Oh, okay. okay. But he is the most boring actor in the world to me. I'm not a big fan of him. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's funny. Casting agent Marion Doherty wanted to cast Danny Glover after seeing him in the movie The Color Purple. Yep. So she arranged to fly Mel Gibson from Sydney, and Danny Glover flew from Chicago. They met in Los Angeles, and the buddy cop movie of the 80s was made. It was instant chemistry like they were immediately playing off each other riffing off each other and just immediately had that perfect chemistry raj meet your new partner and that by the way is one of the things that makes this movie so good is they've got this animosity throughout the movie and that's you know we talked 
we talked in our Raiders and uh, Back to the Future episode about the hero's journey and how characters, you know, have to go through this cycle of change as they go through the movie. Well, these two guys both go through that cycle of change, but it's really the relationship that goes through the change because at the beginning of the movie, it's like, you know what? I don't want to work with you. And by, <laughs> and by the end of the movie, he's given him back the bullet and he's going to eat the crummy Christmas dinner with the family. So when we get to Lethal Weapon 2, by the way, they've become good friends at this point. So what are you going to do to have bickering? Well, you're going to have Joe Pesci. That's what you're going to do. <laughs> Whatever you need, Leo gets. You get it? <laughs> I use that all the time to break the ice when I meet people. You know, it's good. I asked my wife right before I came out here. I'm like, all right, I'm getting ready to record Lethal Weapon Die Hard. What's your favorite part of Lethal Weapon? And she's like, here's what she said. She goes, okay, 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 okay. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, they f*** you at the drive-thru. <laughs> <laughs> Lethal uh, Weapon 2 takes, ah, oh, it's so uh, This This franchise is so great. Listen, we're not here to talk about Lethal Weapon 2, but since, we're, since you brought it up, <laughs> the script for Lethal Weapon 2 was originally written by Shane Black, and they didn't use it. He got frustrated, walked off the movie, and they brought in Jeff Boehm, who we talked about in The Lost Boys. Yeah. Right? Yeah, right? that's right. At which you mentioned makes an appearance in lethal weapon because of Richard Donner. It shows up on the movie marquee behind them as they're walking along, having their hot dog. It says lost boys hit of the year. And so Jeff Bohm's the one that comes in and, and rewrites this script to give it more comedy and, and not as dark. Shane black had written a very, very dark lethal weapon two that ends with the death of Martin Riggs. And they said, thanks, but no thanks. You know, here's your money. Thank you. Have a nice day. But he maintains to this day that it is the best script he has ever written. Really? Yeah. I would love to see that. I would yeah, love to I'm, see that. I'm sure there are lots and lots of people who would love to see it, but I don't think anybody ever will. Man. Hey, just a little side note. Mel Gibson turned down starring roles in the movie The Fly and The Untouchables. Can you imagine Mel Gibson as Elliot Ness and the Untouchables? Yes. Yeah. Kind of, kind of cool, right? Yeah, he could have done that. I love all these what-if scenarios, these 80s what-if. Well, the interesting thing about Mel Gibson is he had not done a movie in over a year at the time that they started filming Lethal Weapon. He had had some crazy success with Mad Max, and he had done, I think, like four movies in one year, which is a huge undertaking, and he just... He was he's like Russell Crowe. He's like, I got to go back to the farm. He went back to the farm on Australia and just put a do not disturb sign on the door. And so there is, there is an original opening for Martin Riggs that nobody, unless you've seen like the outtakes or the, the special features, you don't, you haven't seen it where he is in a bar drinking and he gets into this fight with these other guys and he's looking in the mirror before all of this happens. And he looks like he was road hard and hung up wet. He looks bad. And he says, I look that way because I hadn't gotten any sleep the night before we shot this scene because it had been so long since I filmed a movie, I was scared to death. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Love that story. Hey, I, I want to drop a little 80s tidbit real quick. 
um, very minor, I, I say a minor character. The whole plot revolves around this character, but she's only in it for a few moments. Jackie Swanson plays Amanda Hunsaker. She is the prostitute, prostitute that falls to her death, jumps to her death, jumps to her death at the very beginning of the movie, right? Yeah. Topless, drugs, prostitute, everything a growing death. boy needs. <laughs> so the whole plot of the movie revolves around her death. Jackie Swanson plays Kelly on Cheers. She plays Kelly, Woody Kelly, Harrelson's Kelly, 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 <laughs> Kelly, K-E-L-L-Y, because she's Kelly, 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 Kelly. <laughs> that's Kelly. it. She's oh, Kelly. Awesome. She's Woody's wife on Cheers. Oh, that's fantastic. And she's the pretty little rich girl who's pristine and prude and sweet and playing absolutely the exact opposite of that character. I love it. Okay, real quick. Gary Busey was hired as Mr. Joshua. Now, if you would kindly tell me everything you know, I promise you I'll kill you quick. He asked for the part. Did he? Yeah. So he hadn't done a lot. Like, he was kind of on the downward slide. He had obviously had a lot of success with, uh, what's the Buddy Holly movie called? I think it's called The Buddy Holly Story. Okay, well, that makes sense. All right. So anyway, he had had quite a bit of, of success, but then he had not been getting good quality offers for a while. And he saw a lot of promise in this script. And so he he asked, he was like, can I be in this movie? I'm like, oh, of course, sure. Because it's weird to think about both of these movies, they were not expected to be big hits. Neither one of them were expected to be big hits. It was just kind of a hey, see what you guys can do with this crazy bunch of stuff. And like you said, they were both of them throwing them together on the fly. And so that's why you get, I mean, you know, Gary Busey, you kind of think of as a major actor, but I mean, he does have the final fight scene, but he was number two in the movie. And so it was interesting to see him in that part. Instead of the head bad guy, he was he was just kind of the, the biggest heavy. His most memorable scene in the whole movie is when the general tells him to hold out his arm so he huh. can hold a flame under his arm to show how tough he is and how devoted and loyal he is. So who's the other guy in that scene? You guys are gone, man. You're like out there. Ed O'Ross. Okay. Ed, Ed O'Ross is that guy. And I feel like I was, I could never figure out why that part wasn't bigger because he was, he was, I mean, obviously a major part in that scene, but he was a pretty big actor at that time. He, he seemed to be like, it was this big, big scene that goes on. I expected him to be in more in the movie, but the interesting thing is the role he had done just before he did this movie was in Moonlighting. <laughs> <laughs> he had, oh, had two. Right? He had had two uh, two episodes of Moonlighting as uh, Mr. Navarone. So there you go. It's interesting. Again, intertwined these movies. Very intertwined. Kind of the next big movie that he did was Red Heat with Arnold Schwarzenegger, who was in Predator, directed right. by Johnny Tiernan. I, I just cannot. I still can't figure out why that was our one brief moment we got with this guy, and then he wasn't in the rest of the movie. Other people that were considered for Mr. Joshua: James Woods, Christopher Walken. Tommy Lee Jones, Scott Glenn, John Saxon. I don't know. I, I like Gary Busey. Then the main bad guy, I the only other movie that I can remember him in is Liar Liar. He's like the head partner oh, at the law yeah. firm that gets that gets roasted. And he's his laugh and that is awesome. I think he's he's his comedy is great. I was impressed. Tracy Wolf plays Rianne Murtaugh in Lethal Weapon. I have not seen her in anything else that I can think of. Yeah. Every time I see her, I'm like, that's Roger Murtaugh's daughter. She was 25 when they filmed this, playing a 16-year-old. Makes her obsession movie, with, with 
Martin Riggs a little less creepy. Every time I see this, I'm so empathetic with the Murtaugh character, Roger Murtaugh, uh-huh. that I'm like, yeah, she does need to go upstairs and put on small clothes. <laughs> She's not going out dressed like that. No way. Mel Gibson's character, Martin Riggs, is supposed to be 38 in Lethal Weapon. Mm-hmm. Mel Gibson was only 30 at the time he shot this. Roger Murtaugh is supposed to be 50. They make a big deal of this. Mm-hmm. He even blows out a birthday cake candles while he's sitting in the bath with his entire family around. Most uncomfortable scene in both of these movies. <laughs> and, and he makes a big deal. 50 years old. 50 years old. I'm supposed to be retiring. 50. Danny Glover was actually 40 years old when he shot this. Yeah, and was in incredible shape. Like, they constantly talk about how good a shape he was in. And so, you, I mean, you know the scene where they're running down the road, right? Like, Mel Gibson trucking along, sprinting down the road with the machine gun in his hand. And then Murtaugh, Danny Glover, is kind of hobbling along down the road, dragging his foot, out of breath, has to sit down, all this stuff. They shoot this scene, and Richard Donner comes over to Danny Glover. He's like, okay, um... You okay, Danny? Can we do? Can we try to do this one more time? And Danny's like, "What do you mean, am I okay?" He gets up, <laughs> runs around the block, comes back. He's like, "Let's do it." He's <laughs> like, "Acting genius, thank you." Okay, uh, just a couple more things. Flip back to Die Hard really quick. Bonnie Bedelia was hired as Holly Gennaro. Bruce Willis really went to bat for her. He had seen her in a movie called Heart Like a Wheel, where she played a race car driver. I don't know if you remember that one. But he really just loved her performance in that movie, and he personally recommended her to play his estranged wife, Holly Gennaro. Other people that they were interested in were Linda Hamilton, Gina Davis, Deborah Winger, Michelle Pfeiffer, Jamie Lee Curtis, Kelly McGillis, and Carrie Fisher. My gosh, all of those just scream 80s movies. So it's interesting, you know, the... Part of the wonderfulness of this movie is that it doesn't spoon feed you everything that's going on. Like we know there's a problem with John and Holly, but we really don't know what it is. There isn't some big exposition as to what went wrong in their marriage, why they're estranged. We just have this kind of general idea that she's pursuing a career and he's not happy with that. But what we have is this fantastic short little scene right before all of the action starts where he's just finished walking around, making fists with his toes in the carpet. And they're- They're doing their best to get along for about 30 seconds before he has to to torpedo the ship and say, (laughs) I can't remember. What does he say? Do you remember what he says? She's like, she says, I missed you. And he's like, you missed me. But I guess you didn't miss my name, huh? Except when you're (laughs) signing checks. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. So the, the classic dumb head husband thing to say, and he does it and they've got this, vicious short little exchange but it it informs so much as to their relationship and you believe their love and animosity for each other in just that brief little scene and the way that they did that Stephen D'Souza had Bruce Willis and Bonnie Bedelia improv some stuff and they would improv long bits of that go into the detail but then once they actually shoot the scene, they don't give you all that detail. They just let it be the subtext behind what they're saying. And they did it fantastically. I love how you even get a little bit of that with Argyle in the limo on the way there, right? Yep. Why'd you come with her, man? What's up? Because I'm a New York cop. I got a six-month backlog in New York scumbags I'm still trying to put behind bars. I can't just pick up and go that easy. 
So in other words, you thought she wasn't gonna make it out here and she'd come crawling up back to you. So why bother to pack, right? <laughs> like I said, you're very fast, Argyle. The actor Deborah White who plays Argyle is hilarious in this movie. Absolutely. A couple other people we really need to talk about casting-wise in yeah. Die Hard. I want to talk a little bit about Reginald Vell Johnson. Hey, Lincoln 30 to dispatch. Hey, Del 30, go ahead. Yeah, that's a wild goose chase over here at Nakatomi Plaza. Everything here is okay. Over. But nobody has no place to go. Let it snow, let it snow. Who played a cop in Perfect Strangers. Yes. Who then became the lead character in the TV show. Family Matters. Then I knew that. that. (laughs) (laughs) But he does an awesome job of kind of being the heart of the movie, right? Everybody loves Sergeant Al Powell. I had this thought. You you just... You tell me what you think about this. So uh-huh. obviously Lethal Weapon is a buddy cop movie, right? Right. Is yes. Die Hard a buddy cop movie? Yeah, absolutely it is. Without I mean, a doubt. It could, I mean, he's really like, uh, Sergeant Al Powell is the mentor. He's the guy who leads John McClane through all of this stuff. He leads him through the tough times. It's their exchange that leads to the character transition. I don't know. Maybe this is a buddy cop movie. I think it is. I think it's a buddy cop movie where the cops are separated and And long to be back together, you know? Yeah. I, I love the relationship that they build. And it's still, again, like I said before, fascinating to me that they probably shot all of Reginald Val Johnson's scenes after Bruce had gone back to Moonlighting and wasn't even there anymore. I do know for a fact on my research, they, Bruce Willis and Reginald Val Johnson did not meet until the last scene of the movie. They never met until the famous It's Snowing Bear Bond scene. <laughs> Right. (laughs) Let's talk about William Atherton for just a second. Okay. This guy played the world's greatest 80s butthole in every movie. Give us a break, Thornburg. Eat it, Harvey. Right? He like (laughs) tops himself in every movie. Well, him or Paul Gleason. It's a real (laughs) toss-up. Right? But somehow the brilliance of Joel Silver or John McTernan or whoever got both of these guys in the same movie. How freaking awesome is that? I'm telling you. So William Atherton plays the professor in Real Genius, who is out to flunk Chris Knight, Val Kilmer's character. Yep. And then he's also the health inspector or the safety inspector in Ghostbusters, the one who does not know the magic word. It's true. This man has and then as you said paul gleason plays the principal in the breakfast club yeah right yeah don't mess with the bull you get the horns also the corrupt inspector in trading places oh i totally forgot about that and then one guy i really wanted to bring up before we go any further alexander gudinoff we could do a whole podcast and maybe we'll do a mini one-off on him Mm-hmm. He was a Russian ballet dancer yep. who defected. Yep. They hired him because they knew he could be athletic enough to do fight scenes. Right. And the fight when scene I between st- him and Bruce Willis was not a, like a choreographed thing. It was very much an improvisational, we're just fighting away, but they did a fantastic job with it. Yep. I saw an interview with Joel Silver, and when he was discussing Alexander Gudnoff, mm-hmm. he said, great guy, drunk all the time. Yes, which is hilarious until you learn that he died in the mid-90s of cirrhosis of the liver, yep. which is tragic. Right. 
Yeah. Just a couple more notes on pre-production D before we wrap it up. I thought it was interesting. Now this is, this is pre-production. It's also a production, but the fictional Nakatomi Plaza is actually the headquarters of 20th Century Fox. Yes. This building was incomplete. Yeah. But there were people working in this building. Yes. At the time they were filming this movie. The company actually had to charge itself rent to use this building. Had to. Or <laughs> or used it as an excuse to spend money that didn't that was now tax deductible, I would say. Yeah, oh, there was there a there was a lawyer downstairs who didn't represent anybody. He was a pretty high powered lawyer in, in LA, but he did not represent any, anyone in the picture. And so he was none too happy about the full sound effect blasts of all of the machine guns. <laughs> going on imagine trying to do work and you know you've got (laughs) machine guns and people jumping off buildings with fire hoses and helicopters and missile launchers hit it again i mean it'd be hard to work here's something interesting nakatomi plaza nakatomi is the name of a Japanese battleship. That's the way they got this name. They came across this list of, and I think they're named after like Japanese clans of the past and stuff, the battleships are. And so they're going through the list of Japanese battleships and they see Nakatomi and they're like, yeah, that sounds cool. Let's go with that. So Nakatomi just look cool. And that's why they decided to go with it. But then the logo, I never realized this before, but Joel Silver was talking about how they came across the logo. He found it in a catalog that had samurai helmets on it. If you go back and look at the, the logo, it's these it's these bars that kind of come up and two little circles in it above the name Nakatomi, and it looks like a samurai helmet. I never noticed until he said that, but I was like, holy cow, Nakatomi the samurai pretty freaking awesome and this movie did fantastic in japan you know if there's any concerns about you know the weird kind of uh, cultural things that go on with the japanese comments <laughs> this right. movie killed won awards in japan that's awesome so a couple of things on pre-production we've talked a little bit about how they kind of wrote this on the go bruce willis and john mctiernan talked publicly about how they didn't really know who john mcclain was until about halfway through shooting who are you then just a fly in the ointment, Hans. The monkey in the wrench. The pain in the ass. Right. But I thought this was interesting. Jeb Stewart, who wrote the original screenplay for Die Hard, yeah. um, was having difficulty writing the screenplay. And while he was driving at night in Los Angeles, after a fight with his wife, he was driving behind a truck carrying refrigerators. Did you hear this story? No, this is good. Go ahead. Okay. So he was driving behind a truck carrying refrigerators and one of the refrigerator boxes fell out of the truck. He thought he was going to die. He like swerved and, and thought, I'm, this is it. This is it for me. And it turns out the box was empty. It didn't have a fridge in it. It is just the box. Uh-huh. And so he plowed through it with his car, folded over the top. And he realized that if he had died, he would not have been able to apologize to his wife. And that made it into the movie. The whole thing about how she's heard me say I love her a thousand times, but she's never heard me say I'm sorry. That's because Jeb Stewart plowed through a refrigerator box. That's awesome. That is a great story. Wow. That's fantastic. The original script called for terrorists to hijack the building. John McTiernan, he he didn't like the idea of terrorists seizing control of Nakatomi Tower. Nobody likes terrorists, right? Right. But if they're robbers, a bank heist, 
is way more fun. Just a common thief. I'm an exceptional thief. Since um, I'm moving up to kidnapping, you should show some more respect. You should be more polite. Okay, so that does it for pre-production. Are you done? I haven't even got started yet. Forget that. <laughs> Forget that. <laughs> you have to be done because that's the end of this episode. <laughs> well. We'll start back up on the rest of it for uh, our next episode. Thank you, everybody, so much for being here. Jason, you know what one shepherd said to the other shepherd? Get the flock out of here. (laughs) We'll see you all next time.